others and try again. And if they still won't, then if they still won't repent, then the whole church is to pursue this person and call them to repentance and obedience. The second part of verse 17 says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And we saw last week that for someone to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector means to put them out of the church. Other scriptures tell us not to associate with a so-called brother who's continuing to walk in sin and refuses to heed the church in this way. We're not to be rude to this person. We're not to try to shame them. Our goal remains always to win them back. But in such a case, we seek to win them back by removing them from the benefits of the fellowship of the church. They are put out of the church and they're now in Satan's territory. We talked about that. They're delivered over to Satan. And last week I argued that it is Christian love that compels us to follow Jesus' command here. Not to do this, not to follow this process that Jesus lays out is, according to verse 10, to despise one of these little ones. Jesus told us in verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Not to do this is to let these little ones that God loves go astray. Not to do this is really akin to not sharing the gospel with someone. Not sharing the gospel with unbelievers because in both cases, the extreme end result of that action would be for the person to perish. The person who goes astray into sin and does not turn from that sin, even when the whole church pursues them, is showing themselves to be an unbeliever. Now, there's no guarantee that they are, in fact, an unbeliever. If they are a believer, God will bring them back. But they're at the very least showing themselves to be an unbeliever. And in the context here, the end result for the sheep that goes astray And I have to find the verse here for you. Verse 14 is that one of them should perish. Now we have to harmonize all this, and we're not going to do it today, but we have to harmonize all this with our understanding of salvation and with the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. But the end result, again, is that a so-called brother is going to perish in his sins if he does not repent. Now, Paul especially is very clear on this, and I want to just, as we kind of are getting warmed up here this morning, I want to take you to a number of passages. Let's start over, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Just showing us here the seriousness of this whole thing that the Lord lays out for us and and how this is really akin to not sharing the gospel with unbelievers. If we don't do this, we are endangering the souls of the brothers and sisters that God cares about. Again, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, 
nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now the believer is justified by faith alone, but we are also by that same faith connected to Jesus Christ and changed. And so we become righteous and we're no longer unrighteous. We're no longer what we once were. And those sins that once characterized our lives, like the sins that Paul lists in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 6, those sins that once characterized our lives increasingly no longer do so. Another text, very, very similar passage is in Galatians 5, starting in verse 19. Paul says there, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God, living for anything other than God, being captured by anything other than God. So these are parts of, these are the works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so again, we see that they, these kinds of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there's a similar warning again in Ephesians chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, starting at verse 5, Paul says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul says in verse 7, Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And what all this means is that we are to, we are, uh, what, what this means is that we are one of the means One of the the ways that the Lord is going to use in a believer's life to keep them from sin. You see, we are to, to be a means to keep one another from perishing in our sins. And so not to do this is very similar to neglecting to share the gospel with unbelievers. Now, I'm not going to, like I said, I'm not going to be able to harmonize genuine salvation with perseverance of the saints this morning. But we need to know that true believers are those who persevere in following Christ. And one of the ways that the Lord ensures that we persevere is by putting us in a church that will follow these instructions that the Lord Jesus lays out in our text. And so there's lots of things that it would mean if we don't do this and and we don't follow the Lord here. And one of them, another one, is that it's also disobedience. Now, whether we're talking about an individual or whether we're talking about a corporate body, a local church, if we don't follow our Lord's 
instruction to his church, really the Lord's first instruction to his church, then we are walking in disobedience. Now, and I don't probably have to tell you this, but, but so many churches refuse to practice this for one reason or another. They say that it doesn't work. Or they say that we're all sinners and, and, and so how could we do this? How could we follow these instructions since we all sin? Or they say that they love too much ever to do this and missing the fact that it's love that, that really is the motivation for following the Lord's instructions here. And maybe there's other reasons why churches refuse to do this, but there's really no scriptural reason to disobey the instructions from the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, He is the head of the church. This is His church that He is building, and so we really need to do that His way. What we need then in order to do this, because I admit it's not, it's not going to be easy, what we need then is some encouragement. We need some promises to encourage us and motivate us to do what is quite difficult, humanly speaking. And I think many of us, if we could kind of interview each other on this whole thing, I think we would feel ill-equipped to go and, and show our brother his fault. And we have all kinds of reasons why something like this makes us uncomfortable. And I admit there's many, many things that are, are easier to do than what the Lord lays out here. But Jesus gives us some promises in verses 18 to 20 to encourage us and motivate us in case we needed more than what we've already seen, right? We, I think as we've gone through this section, we've seen a lot of reasons that we need to do this. A lot of motivations, a lot of, of good things we've seen, but there's even more for us in verses 18 to 20. And what we're going to see then is three promises. Three promises, and, and these are for the church corporately. These are for us together. The you in verses 18 to 20, which is what we're going to look at this morning, the you is plural. In verses 15 to 17, it was singular. And Jesus was speaking to the individual believer, telling us what we as individuals were to do Regardless of what anyone or, or anyone else does or doesn't do, that's what we are to do as individuals. But now Jesus speaks to the whole church together in the plural you, and he speaks to the whole church together, and he continues as he does to have this whole process in mind. So I, I called this this morning Three promises for a faithful church that practices church discipline. Three promises for a faithful church that practices church discipline. In verse 18, we're going to see number one, the promise of guidance. The promise of guidance in verse 18. In verse 19, we're going to see the promise of prayer or the promise for prayer. And then in verse 20, we're going to see the promise of presence, number three. And so three promises for a faithful church the practice is church discipline. And number one is this promise of guidance in verse 18. Now this promise seems to have the final step in this process in mind. When somebody is removed from the church. Or again in the words of verse 17 in the second half of verse 17. 
If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then verse 18 picks up and says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now the language here is virtually identical to what the Lord told Peter in Matthew 16 and verse 19. And so I want you to turn back and I want you to look at Matthew 16 and verse 19. Now the only difference is that in in 16, 18, and 19, Jesus is talking to Peter and he and he uses the singular. These promises are for Peter there. In our text, in verse 18 of Matthew 18, it's plural for all of us together. So look at Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, I'm going to say Hades because that's what it is in the original, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And then verse 19, I will give you, you to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now we saw in Matthew 16 that these keys represented authority, and they were authority to open and close doors. And these keys were given to Peter who would open the door to the kingdom by preaching the gospel. Peter never had the authority to say, you are in, you are out. His his authority was really limited to what the Spirit did in people's hearts as he preached the gospel. And so Peter opened the door to the kingdom by inviting people to come to Christ, to turn from sin, to repent and believe the good news that he preached. And when we studied this in chapter 16, I tried to point out the unique grammar in verse 19. And I'm going to try to point it out to you again here right now. Where it says, whatever you bind, or where it says, whatever you loose, that's in the normal past tense. And it looks at the, the action of binding or loosing generally, or it looks at the action as a whole. Binding or loosing is what you do on earth. In 1619, you is singular because Jesus is talking to Peter. Again, in our text in verse 18 of chapter 18, you is plural because it's speaking to the 12th. Jesus is speaking to the 12th. And then through them, he's also speaking to all of us. I believe we all have these same keys. Now, the only difference then between 1618 and 18, 1619 and 1818 is the singular you and the plural you. So whatever you bind on earth or whatever you loose on earth, that's the normal past tense. But where it says, shall be bound in heaven or shall be loosed in heaven, it's in the what they call the perfect past tense. Now you don't need to know the different Greek tenses, but what you do need to know and, and what I, I want to show you here is that this perfect past tense means that something happened in the past with results that continue into the present or or up to the time of the writing or of the person speaking. And what this means is that the that before any binding or loosing happens on earth, it has already happened in heaven and continues in that state. And so what what's happening here is that decisions are made in heaven. 
Doors are open for effective ministry. Hearts are open to receive the ministry of the word. Eyes are open to perceive the glory of Christ in the gospel. And those realities from heaven are then played out on earth through Peter and through the other apostles and through us. What this is then is a promise to us of guidance. The Lord is going to guide his church on earth such that we reflect what's happening in heaven or what has already happened in heaven. Those who have been chosen for salvation by the Father in heaven are going to come to Christ and join the church on earth. On the other hand, in regards to binding, we will also reflect what has happened in heaven. When a believer or a professing believer refuses to repent of their sin, they are bound to that sin. That sin or those sins has caught that person and they are bound. And so the person caught in unrepentant sin is is not going to know God's favor. They're not going to know God's pleasure. We might say it this way, they're not going to know God's smile. And so there's a break of fellowship between the true believer and God or between this person and God. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now God in heaven knows the state of every soul on earth. We ourselves, we don't, we don't necessarily know. But our text is a promise that, that what is true in heaven is going to be manifested on earth. What God has already done in heaven is going to be reflected on earth, both in opening doors, and those are doors to the kingdom, opening doors through evangelism, <clears throat> and also in closing doors through church discipline. Now, I want to take you then to another very similar passage in John chapter 20 and verse 23. I don't think I showed you this when we were in Matthew 16, but let's go to John 20, 23. Jesus says to the 12 there, or I guess that would be now to the 11, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And the structure here is very, very similar to our text. If you forgive and if you withhold are both uh, regular past tense verbs. They are forgiven and it is withheld. Those are both in the perfect tense. They have been and continue to be forgiven. They have been and, or it has been and it continues to be withheld. Now we know that the apostles, they didn't have the ability to forgive sins at will. Their task was always to preach the way to forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And if someone came to Christ by grace through faith, they could say to that person that your sins are forgiven. But if someone would not come to Christ, they could say forgiveness has been withheld. And so John twenty twenty three also functions very similarly to our text. It's a promise, a promise of guidance. And so we have the same idea in our text. There's this tie between binding and loosing and between forgiving or not forgiving sins. 
And in both cases, the the church has a promise that what has already been accomplished or what has already been determined in heaven is going to be reflected on earth. And so I hope you were able to kind of follow all of that or most of that. Again, look at the text in our text, Matthew 18, 18. Maybe I'll give it my own translation here. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And if you actually, if you look at footnote 6 in your ESV Bible, if you have an ESV Bible this morning, uh, actually I'm looking at it right now, it's footnote 7, it actually offers that translation as well. It says, or shall have been bound, shall have been loosed. So let's begin then to apply this teaching. And, and there's a few things that, that we should say here and that we should talk about here. Go Again, look at, look at the text there. Have it in front of you. This text shows us that the church on earth should reflect, at least as much as possible, the church in heaven. The church should be a pure body. And when someone goes astray, we should seek to bring them back to the obedience of the faith. And if they refuse, they should be removed from the church. When somebody gets saved by repentance and faith, we receive them into the church. And the church on earth then should reflect the realities of heaven. Truly saved people should be in the church. Disobedient and unsaved people should be outside of the church. Our verse promises guidance such that the heavenly truth of people's souls is going to be manifested on earth. Now, there's always going to be a a Judas in our midst that we are unaware of. We're not going to be able to do this perfectly, but we should never knowingly allow an unbeliever to join the church or to continue on as a member of the church. We should never knowingly allow somebody who's walking in unrepentant, disobedient sin to continue to be part of the church. Unbelievers are encouraged to attend and hear the gospel, but they should not be regarded as being in. Professing believers who continue in sin should be put out. The church on earth is to reflect the universal church as heaven knows it. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're to, we're to keep the, the little bit of leaven out of the lump. Right, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We're to get the leaven out of the lump. We're to be a people set apart for God. Now another, that's one application. Another application that we need to talk about here is is maybe going to be surprising for you. These verses, verses 15 to 20 of Matthew 18, are, are one of the key verses in the argument for congregationalism. Now, I, I don't know if you even know what I'm talking about when I say congregationalism. I, I think you would normally think about it as, uh, I'm going to call it brotherhoodism. Okay. But, but the idea that, that the church is to, to kind of vote on decisions. If you ask someone who supports a congregational form of, of church government, you know, where members of the church kind of vote on certain matters that the elders or that the leaders of the church kind of bring to the church, and there's a, a kind of democratic congregational voting structure. If you, if you ask somebody who believes in that kind of a system, where do they find that in Scripture, 
you might be surprised to know that these are the, the verses right at the top of the list. This is the place that people go to prove that congregationalism is a biblical model of church government. Now, I say that might surprise you because likely we've been studying this the past three weeks. Likely you haven't seen it. Likely you haven't seen it at all. At all. Even, even though we've gone through these verses carefully week after week, I, I'd be surprised if any of you thought, well, there you go. We should have a congregational system of church government. Now, I think you haven't seen it because it's not here. But you should at least know where this idea of congregationalism comes from. And the argument goes something like this, and I'm, I'm doing my best here to argue this case. Church discipline is the responsibility of the whole church. And nothing is said in this passage about elders or leaders, and so the whole church is responsible to watch out for one another in regards to false doctrine or in regards to sinful practice. And I would say so far, so good. But the, the argument then goes like this. Therefore, since the whole church has responsibility and the whole church exercises these keys which represent authority, then therefore the whole church has authority. And if the whole church has authority, how else would they exercise that except by a vote? Now, I don't know how that went for you, but when I first wrote that out, I thought, hey, that's actually somewhat convincing. But I think it falls short. And I said last week that we have to understand this passage in its historical setting. You see, the church is still future at this point in Matthew 18 and in this whole section. The church is future. Jesus and the disciples are maybe on the outskirts of Judaism, but they, they haven't, there hasn't been a full separation yet. Uh, the, the church hasn't begun yet. And it would be too early at this point for Jesus to begin laying out an ecclesiastical structure for a separate group called the church. He's just giving them hints of this church, but he hasn't laid out everything that's going to happen kind of after his, his death and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so the disciples aren't ready for that. They can hardly even understand that Jesus is going to die and rise again. They're, they really have no concept that there's going to be this delay and that they're, they're, the kingdom's not going to come right away. They, they really don't have this concept that there's going to be this time period where they're going to preach the gospel and the Lord is going to build this thing called the church through them. And so if Jesus would have said anything in this passage, like, bring it to the elders who are then going to tell the church, the disciples would have said, what? Who? What's going on, Jesus? It was too early for that. And besides, we got to think about it this way. Who is Jesus talking to in Matthew 18? He's talking to the twelve. And the twelve were apostles, and they were going to be the elders and the leaders of this future church. And so he told the apostles here what they were to do. And so my argument here kind of goes something like this. And number one, it's premature to come to this passage expecting a robust ecclesiology or, or precise instructions on the form of church government. It's just too soon for that at this point. And then adding to that secondly, number two, there's a difference between responsibility and authority. 
And I would say that the whole church is responsible to watch out for each other as we've seen, but that doesn't mean that the whole church together has authority in everything. Another way to say that is to say it this way, maybe, that, that you really have to import your democratic system of congregationalism into this text. You actually can't get it out of this text. And then number three in, in my argument here, if we're gonna con, if we're gonna find a democratic system of congregational voting in the Bible, we're gonna have to find it somewhere else. And it would have to be very clearly explained because there, there was no such system either in government or in the judicial system or in any other part of Judaism. And so if something's going to drastically change and there's going to be a whole new democratic system of voting somewhere in the New Testament church, it's going to have to be very clearly explained in some other passage. And so when we come to a book like First Timothy, where Paul explains how one ought to behave in the household of God and what elders must be and what they must do, we would expect him to lay out how such a system worked. But instead, what Paul talks about is qualified men called elders in chapter 3 who manage their households well, verses three, uh, 4 and 5 of chapter 3, and who also manage the church and so 1 Timothy 5.17 says, let the elders who rule well, and that word rule is that same word manage, let the elders who manage well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Or we might expect to find this somewhere else, some, some verse describing, maybe, maybe we would expect to go to the book of Acts or to go to some other passage and find a, a verse that describes a congregational vote on something. But we don't find one anywhere in the New Testament. Now, if you're a congregationalist and if you know your arguments, and I don't know if any of you are or, or, or do, then, but if you were, you'd be thinking, okay, what about Acts chapter 15, or you'd be thinking, what about 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 5? So I'm just going to give you those in case that that's you. Acts 15 doesn't describe a vote. And I'm going to just, you're going to have to go read Acts 15 if you're curious about this on your own. Acts 15 doesn't describe a vote. The elders in that context made a decision. The elders made a decision and the whole congregation was supportive and in agreement with the elders. And that's good and and that's really how it should be. But there wasn't a vote on what the apostles and the elders decided in Acts 15. Or in, uh, I wrote in my notes, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but it's actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 5. And the, the context of both of those passages is that church discipline case with the sinful man, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 5 later on, but in that context, it talks about the majority. And the majority there is not, not that they had a vote in a democratic system. The majority was the people who followed Paul's directions on the church discipline from 1 Corinthians 5, whereas the minority had refused to discipline the man. And again, there's, there's, there's nothing in that context to do with a vote. Okay, so that's kind of the, the another way to apply this thing and, and something that I, I felt like we needed to talk about because this is one of the key verses that, that people are going to go to 
in order to find a congregational system of church government. So hopefully that was for somebody someday. Let's, let's move on then to another application. And I, I really hope that there's nobody that needs this, but all of us really need to be convinced about this thing that I'm going to say next. All of us need to take this process very seriously. And so we're, we're thinking about this whole church discipline process. And the promise of this text is that the church will be guided by heaven so that if, God forbid, that if any of us are confronted by another Christian in this manner, and it comes to this point of being removed from the church, then then what, what this guidance means is that we need to weigh this very carefully. We can't go so far as to say that any church that practices this, is, this church discipline is always going to be guided by heaven so that they will never err. But still, how careful should we be to reject the counsel of a church that faithfully goes through this process when, when the Lord himself promises that what happens on earth is going to be aligned to what's happening or what has already happened in heaven? And so it would be very likely, we can say at least that much, it would be very likely that to reject the church on earth would be equivalent to rejecting God and rejecting Jesus Christ. And you need to know that in case it ever comes to this. If if you have gracious brothers and sisters who, who come to you and talk to you one-on-one and then two or three come and then the whole church together comes and, and begs you to repent, you need to take that very, very seriously because it's likely if not almost guaranteed that a faithful church like that is looking out for your well-being and you should repent and turn from your sin. Now, it's possible that there's a church that's wrong and and yet you should seek as much as you possibly can to be at peace with all people as much as it depends on you. And so take this very, very seriously if, God forbid, this ever happens And finally, if you're ever part of this process, if you're ever part of this reconciliation process or church discipline process, whether step one in verse 15 or a witness if you're in verse 16 or whether you're part of this as a, as part of a whole church in verse 17 or whether you go all the way to step four, I think it's important for us to know this promise. Heaven has bound or loosed people. And God knows the truth about people's hearts. He knows the status of every person and he promises to lead us to the same conclusions that he has already come to. And so we can take great encouragement in that reality. God will lead us. God will guide us. God will help us if we ever have to be part of this process. What he has already done in heaven, whether binding a person to their sins or loosing them from their sins, will also be done on earth. And we can trust him for that. And so that's the first promise. The second promise for a faithful church that practices church discipline is number two. It's a promise for prayer. I called it a promise for prayer in verse 19. This is a, this is a tricky one. I'll, I'll just tell you right up front here. This is a difficult verse. And I'm, I'm not even dogmatic. And part of me even wondered, should I even call this a promise for prayer? But let's look at it here. Look at verse 19. Again, I say to you, 
If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, the again I say to you points us back to verse 18 where Jesus said, truly I say to you. And so this is another true statement that our Lord wants to emphasize, truly and now again I say. Now, there's two main ways of interpreting verse 19. The first way sees this as a a promise in prayer. The second way sees it as having nothing at all to do with prayer. Now, the extreme view in regard to prayer is that, and and some of my commentators that I read this week had this view, the extreme view here is that they regard this promise to prayer that that it comes out of nowhere. That, it, that all of a sudden, it, Jesus uh, just kind of gives a random promise about prayer in the middle of his speech about this process of our relationships. And so Jesus makes a promise about prayer when, when multiple disciples ask the Father, Jesus will do it for them. And I think that view just entirely misses the context. In verse 19, we have two of you. Again, in verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am I among them. And of course, these two or three really must refer to the two or three witnesses that we had in verse 16. Look again at verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, if you go down to verse 21 and you look at the following context, what you're going to find is that the same topic continues. And now we're going to talk about next time, we're going to talk about forgiving a brother or sister who sins against us. And so this should not be seen, I don't believe, as an unrelated prayer promise that that just Jesus randomly gives for no reason. Now, the view, let's go to the other view then. So there's an extreme view in the prayer category. Let's look at the other view, and and the other view, again, is that this has nothing to do with prayer at all. And this view says that the two or three who agree, they're not asking God for anything, they're asking their brother in sin for something. Okay, you see that? They're, they're, ask, they're not talking to God, they're, they're asking the, the brother in sin maybe to do something or or to... Whatever. And so then the question is, well, what are they, what are they agreeing on or what are they asking? And it seems to be the idea is that they're asking for a specific repentance or a specific correction of the behavior. And if this view is right, then it's, it's basically a, a verbatim repeat of verse 18. Whatever the two agree on and ask is going to be confirmed by the Father in heaven. So that's kind of that view that, that it's, it's just about the two, the two or three brothers. They ask something specific of this other brother and what they ask because God has guided them according to verse 18 is, is going to be kind of confirmed or stamped by the Father in heaven. So John MacArthur, for example, holds this view when he says, quote, if even two of Jesus's followers are in agreement with each other, that a sinning believer has either repented or refused to repent, they can be sure that they are in in agreement with the Father who is in heaven, end quote. And so the idea then is that the two agree on the situation and the Father 
with them. And then verse 20 is going to add, also Jesus is with them. And I think that's a fine view, and I'm, I'm sympathetic towards it. Um, D.A. Carson also holds a, a view very similar to this. And I think it eliminates some of the difficulties. It fits the context well. Difficulties come when you see this as a prayer promise. Even, even when we tie it to the context, there's some difficulties in, in, in how is, how does, how are our prayers answered in this way? So just think about it here for a minute. Our, for example, R.T. France, he says this. R.T. France takes this as a promise on prayer. And he says at one point, quote, the prayer envis- envisaged, the prayer envisaged, that's how R.T. France writes, by the way. It's very, very, uh, anyways, great commentary, but um, I, try, I usually try not to quote R.T. France for that very reason. But the prayer envisaged in context is likely to be for the restoration of the sinner. Now, the problem with that is that every church is going to pray along those lines, but not every individual is going to be restored. In which case, it seems it would be difficult to conclude, would it not, that that Jesus makes a false promise in this text. And so are are you seeing that? Are you with me? Can you kind of give me a a nod here? The, The Lord doesn't answer every single prayer in every single church discipline case the way we ask. And so we have to kind of understand this a little bit different. Now, another way to understand this is a prayer promise, and I I think it is a prayer promise, but another way to understand this in the context is to see it as a prayer for guidance. And I I really lean towards this view, largely because when when the verb ask is used in Scripture, it's so often used in regards to prayer. And then it says, again, in verse 18, it says, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And that really seems to go beyond verse 18. See, verse 18 was a promise that the church would be guided into heaven's position. In verse 18, heaven's view came first and the church came to the same place. But in verse 19 now, we ask on earth and then, future tense, then it will be done by my Father in heaven. And so the asking and the future tense, it will be done, makes me lean towards the view that this does involve prayer. But we just need to be careful how we apply this. And really like every prayer promise, right? We understand that our prayers don't change God's mind or don't change God's will. And we can't make God do things that he doesn't want to do simply because we pray. And so we can't use this two or three agreeing to... Muted. There you go. Uh, listening to a podcast lately called What Happened at First Baptist, and uh, very good, I would recommend it, um, just kind of a story by Heath Lambert of what happened at the church, and at one point, the church was in financial difficulties, and the pastor would make every person sharpen their pencil until it was just a stub nib, and then he would allow them to come to him personally, change in their stub nib pencil for a, a new full pencil that they could do. And so I thought, hey, let's let's kind of take that and, and go with that and try to save money on batteries this morning. Um, I, you know, I don't mind, but hopefully... Uh, anyways, I'm just going to leave it there. Let's get back. Where, we, you guys remember where we were? Um, we're talking about this prayer promise. And, and we need to be careful, just like always in prayer, we need to be careful 
you know, just because two or three of us agree on earth doesn't mean that we can bend God's metaphorical arm and, and get him to do what we want. Two of us can't agree that, that we both need jet planes, right? For example, hey, we, I, me and Alan, we agree we need a jet plane. How are we going to do the Lord's work without a jet plane? And so um, we agree, and, and therefore we're going to get this plane, because how else are we going to practice church discipline if we can't get down to Edmonton to talk to this brother? And so that's not what this verse is about. It's not a unilateral promise to get whatever we want from God. In verse 20, Jesus mentions gathering in his name, and, and, and that, that, that means that this gathering or this agreeing together about whatever is for Jesus. It's for his sake. It's in his name. It's according to who he is. And that keeps this asking, I think, in line with God's will. And so this asking is in line with God's will, and it, it has a, it has to have a connection to this church discipline. Now Jesus, does keep this general. He doesn't just say, you know, if you ask for guidance, I, you know, if you ask for guidance, I will give it to you. Uh, he says, if you agree on earth about anything that they ask, or, uh, in, in my own translation, it's, it's whatever they ask. And so any, this is for anything or for whatever, but the context is in a, a case of church discipline. And so Jesus, keeps this general. He says anything. He says whatever. Now, I think the request for guidance is going to fit really well here, but we don't want to overly restrict our Lord's whatever or our our Lord's anything. Whatever we ask in this context of a discipline case, if two or more agree, it will be done by our Father. And again, I think guidance would be one example of this. Now, another example might be, we could go to the book of James, and James talks about a prayer for wisdom in trials. And I think that would fit very well here as well. If we, if we go to the Father in prayer for wisdom in trials of church discipline, the, the, the Father is gonna do it for us. What else might we need in such a case? Well, I, I could think of a few things. We might need boldness. We might need courage. We might need patience. We might need the, and, and we will need the filling of the Holy Spirit. And these are all the things that the Father will give us if we ask in a case like this. And I think being faithful here is going to take a lot of grace. And Jesus then is, is promising us, if, if this view is right, Jesus is promising us the resources that we need from the Father. And so I would say to you, if you ever have to be involved in such a case of church discipline, make sure that you do so in prayer. And pray with your brothers and sisters and go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him for boldness and courage and wisdom and and patience and the filling of the Holy Spirit and and know that the Father promises that that and Jesus promises that it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, another reason why I lean towards this view is because if we look at verse 20 now, the, the reason that it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, according to verse 20, is, is it starts with the word for. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And this brings us then to number three 
in our outline. The third promise for a faithful church that practices church discipline is number three, the promise of presence. Again in verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And this is a promise for everyone who's involved in step two of church discipline or really beyond. The two or three have gathered in Jesus' name to do Jesus' will. And they have agreed on the situation. They have, they have prayed and they have asked the Father for whatever they agreed that they needed for that, that step of discipline. And the Father is going to do it. And the reason is because Jesus himself is going to be there with these people in a time like this. And I, and I think that's just such a great comfort to us to know that Jesus himself, there am I among them as the two or three gather in order to be faithful to what the Lord lays out here. And there's really so many amazing things here. Jesus equates gathering together for church discipline and restoration with gathering in his name. And from that, we can, we can really draw this idea that and see how much Jesus wants us to practice this process. To do it is to do it in his name. We are serving him. We are honoring him. We are about his will. We are fulfilling his purposes as we are faithful in church discipline. We could say that Jesus promises to be with a faithful church who practices this. He promises here to be with us in a special way. And I don't even know how to define this way beyond a special way. Jesus is always with us, right? As, as saved individuals, the Holy Spirit is in us. Christ is in us. Christ is with us. But he promises a, a special being in the midst of us if we ever have to practice this church discipline. Another amazing thing here is that for this to work, you know, if Jesus is going to be there in the, among them, if this is going to work, Jesus needs to be omnipresent, doesn't he? You know, if the disciple, if the twelve are, are separated in, in different groups and, and each of them are doing this, Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going to be there. And, and so the idea here is that this could only apply after the resurrection. This can only apply to Jesus as God because even now his human body can only be in one place at a time. And again, Jesus is always with us as individual Christians. This is a promise that as we are faithful to pursue believers who stray, he is going to be with us in a special way. This promise is why, and now I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This promise is why Paul says what he says in 1 Corinthians 5 as, as the Corinthians are, are exhorted by Paul to practice church discipline there. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 3, he says, though I am absent in body, so Paul is not there, he's writing them a letter. He says, though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So Paul's saying, hey, I've already judged the one who's committed this sin as if I was there. And then he instructs them in verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. That comes right from our text. When you are gathered, when two or three are gathered in my name. So Paul says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power 
of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so Paul says there that, that they are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. And because they are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and, and carrying out his instructions from Matthew 18, the power of the Lord is present with them as well. And that's a great comfort, or that should be a great comfort to us in what's likely to be an uncomfortable situation, to know that Jesus himself is with us if we ever have to practice this. And so we've seen then some promises today, the promise of our Lord's special presence with us when we gather in his name to reach out to a brother or sister in sin. We see the the, the, that the promise of the Lord's presence means that he will answer prayers and that the Father will answer prayers in that situation. And when you think about it, why wouldn't he answer our prayers if he is with us and we are gathered in his name to do his will? And so there's no reason why the Lord wouldn't answer prayers along those lines. That was the third and the, the second promises. The first promise was a promise of guidance. That whatever has been bound or loosed in heaven is what will be ba- what we will bind and loose on earth. We have the keys of the kingdom. And our job is to ensure that the church on earth reflects the reality of heaven. And these promises, again, should be a great encouragement to us in what might otherwise be a, a very discouraging time when we have to follow our Lord's instructions. And so we will do well to remember these promises as we go. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for these promises. We thank you that you have shown us so clearly in your word how to handle sin in our relationships with one another. And we just pray that, that you would fulfill this in, in our local church, that you would lead us to the realities of heaven as far as what is bound and, and what is loosed, that you would help us to operate these keys. And, and thinking about that, Father, we pray that, that you would help us to reach lost people, that you would help us to see people saved, and that this would be a place where the doors of the kingdom are open because of your grace and power. But we also pray that you'd be, help us to be faithful to, to bind and to close the doors when somebody continues in sin and won't repent, Father. And so we pray that you would help us to be faithful. And we thank you that, that you will answer our prayers in those times and that you are in the midst of us when we are gathered in your name for that purpose, when we're gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your special presence with us in that time. In Jesus' name, amen.